Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, some parts of southern Ontario are asking to remain in a lockdown. We'll explain why. Parliament is voting to recognize China's persecution of Uyghurs as genocide, even though the Prime Minister won't. And another East Meets West simulcast. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Alicia Thompson, Scott's daughter. Kurt forgot to record his intro, so here I am. He owes me big time. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Look, and I screwed it up. I made a spelling mistake. I said record his interview. And you went, you picked it up and said intro. Good for you. Editing on the fly, girly. Making up for daddy's mistakes. All right. Yeah, sorry. In the last minute, uh, Kurt. For- What's that? Oh, well. <laughs> She's walking out the door and still talking. Uh, Kurt uh, forgot to do the intro this morning, you know, um, school and all that sort of thing. It takes priority. And uh, I wasn't sure whether Alicia was going to uh, to be up for it. Let's leave it at that. And uh, and actually wrote it as she was standing over my shoulder. And I wrote interview instead of intro. But she picked that up. Didn't say intro, or interview, rather. Uh, making up for daddy's mistakes. Good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Take a bow, Will. And uh, Jordan Armanis as well, doing the content. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Very cool show today uh, in the sense that uh, we're, it's another East-West show. Uh, Daniel Smith. Danielle Smith, who uh, we often do uh, the East-West simulcast shows with uh, her last week in Calgary today, uh, or this week rather, and uh, and is moving on to other things, but wanted to do one more uh, last uh, East-West uh, simulcast. So we're going to do that in the one o'clock hour, so it'll be fascinating. We hook up with Calgary, and uh, usually what happens when we hook up with Calgary, they just get a whole pile of Westerners slamming the East. So get ready for that. <laughs> We'll do that uh, between 1 and 2 this afternoon. Uh, lots of stuff to talk about. Uh, obviously, uh, things have opened up in the hammer uh, in other parts of southern Ontario. Now in the red zone, the lockdown officially uh, lifted. Uh, however, uh, obviously, uh, in hot spots like Toronto, Peel, and York, uh, still having a, a hard time uh, getting the virus uh, under control. And their uh, medical officers of health are asking uh, for the lockdown to continue uh, in Toronto for at least uh, another week or two. And here's a report on that. Dr. Davila's message. I've never been as concerned about the threat of COVID-19 to your health as I am now. That despite the fact the number of new COVID cases are down. They don't sound bad. But today's variant count is the tip of an iceberg. She says 56 of today's cases are confirmed as a variant of COVID-19. Dr. Davila says the caution she's calling for will make sure that we don't get caught in a cycle of opening and closing businesses over and over. Dave Woodard, Global News. All right, so uh, obviously still having difficulty. Uh, I, I believe the restaurants in, in Toronto, uh, it's been since October 10th 
that uh, they have been in, in, in a lockdown of some sort. So obviously you can imagine uh, how that is hitting them. Uh, let's bring in Matthew Bingley, City Hall reporter for Toronto and Global News and is with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. As well as can be. How about yourself? <laughs> well, same thing. I hear you. I hear you. So give us an update on this. Where is this now? Obviously, medical officers of health. We've seen uh, Mayor John Tory uh, also uh, calling for the same sort of thing. Where are we on this now? Uh, and another question, uh, and here's my follow-up, <laughs> is that uh, uh, can, the, can these uh, regions do this on their own? Do they need the provinces to do this? Well, it's a bit of a gray area in that sense, uh, because we still need to have the province sign off on this, and, and Cabinet really will ultimate make, uh, ultimately make that decision. Um, as far as the request goes, now it's a little bit of strategy here on uh, the account of the medical officers of health. It's both Dr. Eileen DeVilla and Dr. Lawrence Lowe from Toronto and Peel. They, they made the very public decision to put this letter that they sent to the province's chief medical officer of health, Dr. David Williams, they sent that letter on the weekend, and it did ask to have the regions stay outside the new framework until March 9th. And they say that's at the the earliest, so it really does all depend on the cases. We know that Dr. Williams and Dr. Davila did meet over the will, uh, over the weekend. Uh, Toronto Public Health did confirm that with me yesterday. So you can sort of draw your own conclusions from the fact that they haven't received an answer and they are still putting out this letter. So in question period this morning, there was a bit of an exchange with uh, Andrea Horbath with the NDP and uh, the Christine, uh, Christine Elliott, the health minister, asking if they would respect this decision, or the request rather, and Elliott said that there is another data dump coming tonight that Dr. Williams will have to consider, uh, and they, she made a point of saying that that will be a key part of their decision. So. It sounds like another late night, possibly even an early morning cabinet meeting, but uh, when you look at the previous decisions in the past with Premier Doug Ford saying that he'd like to give at least 48 hours notice a lot of the time for businesses, uh, you would think the right time to put out that message would be on Friday. So uh, my next question to you, Matthew, is when will we know? But obviously, as you mentioned, they are waiting for new data to come in before they make this final call. Yeah, that's right. And uh, today at 3 o'clock, we will hear from Dr. David Williams. He will be taking calls, uh, I guess questions by calls, from the press. Uh, and, and you can expect a lot of questions coming to him. Uh, the, 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 the fact that they have gone out early and said that there is more data expected in tonight could signal that, that we're not going to get an answer today. Uh, but again, like you, you had uh, doctor, uh, sorry, <laughs> getting doctors and politicians confused at this point. You, you have uh, the mayor of Toronto, John Tory, this morning saying that uh, we really don't want to see another lockdown after this. And that really is the concern. You, you see the rise of these variants coming in, and that has really ramped up the rhetoric from the medical officer of health, especially in Toronto. Uh, they are so concerned that this will just lead to another lockdown and that we'll just be in this perpetual cycle of opening up and locking down. And, and they point out that that's not healthy for anyone. So this is really becoming a race between uh, the variants and a vaccine, is it not? 
Absolutely. Well, yeah, that's exactly the case. Uh, And just to give you an example of how, like the situation that we're in, it's been noted that COVID cases, the ones that we've been used to dealing with, up to this point, are, are are dropping. People will notice that just by looking at the case counts. But it's the variance in how quickly and infectious they are uh, in the ability that they can spread that is so concerning. Toronto, uh, last week they had 33 cases. It's up to 56. Might not sound like a huge jump, but they also have 250 probable cases. Peel Region, they had five variant cases last week. They're up to 45. And Dr. Lowe yesterday said they have 200 uh, probable tests, and he said that those uh, preliminary tests are very accurate, so he's he's under the assumption that you can also add that extra 200 on there. The, the, the fact that you have just so many of these vaccines are not available for the wide consumption of the public yet, so it, it really is just that hold off for another couple of weeks, get the weather warmer, get people outside, get get vaccines in arms before you, you really risk doing more irreparable damage to the economy how much concern is there matthew that if you keep the regions like toronto peel and and york in 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 lockdown regions while the rest of us in southern ontario are moved into the into the red uh category how concerned are they with people leaving one region and going to another I'd say that should be <laughs> one of the main concerns. If you looked at what everybody did leading up to uh, the, the Christmas break, uh, we, we saw people jumping uh, regions. We've heard a number of people already saying that, uh, that, that, that people should not be going to areas where there are no restrictions. So, uh, But at the same time, we also have York Region saying that they, they, their medical officer of health advocating that they should be put into the red zone, uh, as opposed to the gray, or staying out with uh, York and uh, Toronto. So uh, you, you can see a lot of the tension being presented with politicians really being forced into a, a terrible decision of, of do you uh, concede and, and allow your businesses to suffer longer, or do you threaten a third lockdown and, uh, and, and a third wave, which... Uh, is, is in Toronto and Peel's case, it's the last thing they wanted. Uh, Tory says that he wants this to be the last lockdown we're ever in. Uh, obviously, some pretty uh, ominous words from Dr. Davila last uh, yesterday, rather saying that you know how concerned she was. Obviously, the mayor of Toronto echoing that. Is there any reason to think that once new data comes in and if it verifies their concerns, this will continue? I'd say the data will be exactly what we need to see, yeah. uh, just just in terms of just, again, how quickly the variants do spread and how infectious they are. Uh, Dr. Davila yesterday saying to us that by the time you have an indication that the variants are taking off, she says that it, it will really be too late yeah. to to actually do anything about it. And, and they keep pointing towards the U.K., where uh, obviously with variants there uh, causing a third wave, and they keep pointing out that that third wave has been much, much worse than anything else that has already been uh, experienced. So something that they are desperately trying to avoid. So how is this going over in Toronto, considering uh, health officials and, and, and obviously the mayor want things to continue in lockdown? How is this going over in the city, especially with the restaurant community? Uh, 
I, I think, to be honest, I haven't actually had a chance to actually talk to any restaurants uh, today, but you, you get a sense just as soon as I put the tweets out. I, I live tweet all the, uh, the conferences, and you could get mm-hmm. a sense of the frustration almost immediately. Uh, some people saying it's either the right decision or just, uh, just the wrong one, depending on, on the, 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 the viewpoint, if you want to sample from that. Uh, it's, it's no doubt that there will be a lot of frustration from many retailers who will again point out the, the fact that you have big box stores open during all of this when they have been forced to stay shut. And the argument all along has been that, uh, that, that they have better controls, that they can control yeah. the amount of people into their stores, and that if Toronto and Peel did go into the, uh, the gray zone, it would still be a lockdown, but you would still have, you, the, the new thing is you would have 25% retail capacity. So that has been something that they've been gunning for all along, and when you have uh, an estimated 75,000 other businesses in the province that could be closing their doors uh, but before the pandemic is over, uh, you can sense the stress, and, and a lot of people will be no doubt unhappy by this decision if it goes in the favor of uh, Peel and Toronto, and, and likely the <laughs> number of people very disappointed in the medical community if it's the opposite. Yeah, I mean, they're, you know, finding the balance here, it just must be hell for leaders. Um, Matthew, uh, they, there's been chatter of this, you know, they're saying they don't want to open up and then go back into a lockdown. But uh, really, when you think about it, is is Toronto, Peel or York even going to get out of a lockdown until a mass vaccination uh, program begins in those areas, in those cities? That is uh, about as the definition of a crystal ball question, if I've ever yeah. heard one. Uh, the, the way that we have been seeing things go, uh, you know, the, 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 the rhetoric out of Toronto City Hall has especially been from John Tory, the mayor, saying that, you know, cases are coming down, but he will repeatedly couple that with they are nowhere close to what we, uh, what we saw last summer. And, and that really seems to be the benchmark that he is shooting for. Uh, he, he, he gets an earful every single day by the business community, by people who are suffering. He understands it. Uh, but I, I think the sense of having to put the city through something that could be unnecessarily harmful is something that he is also trying to weigh that with. Uh, the, the other side of things with vaccines, you talk about... Uh, the availability of them. Yesterday, the uh, the city's head of our vaccine task force was asked if anything else has really been done. If any anybody had been jabbed past uh, the the initial uh, 250 or so people who were frontline workers when they opened their uh, their vaccination clinic for two days, he said no. It, that that's just the situation that we're in. We have no vaccines. So whether that is uh, now the position that we're in, that we have to wait around until we achieve herd immunity or something close to that. Uh, that is, uh, it's an interesting question and one that we haven't really had an answer on. Wow, uh, man, it's just such a fluid story. Matthew Bingley with us, Toronto City Hall reporter for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Uh, the mayor and the cities uh, of Toronto top officials asking to stay into a lockdown, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that affects other regions as well. Matthew, thanks for the time. Very much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. You stay well.
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we were talking about this yesterday, and uh, it seems to be gaining uh, some momentum. Uh, the Conservatives obviously uh, calling on uh, the federal government to uh, to do what it can to get the Beijing 2022 Olympics uh, relocated uh, because obviously they're they are in China where the two Michaels are being held, and not to ma- uh, mention the uh, the prosecution of the persecution rather of the uh, uh, Uyghurs in China and such. And most recently, uh, in a press conference uh, this week, the Prime Minister was asked uh, why he's the only one not to call what is happening to the Uyghurs in China genocide, and uh, and basically said we need to do more study on that and cross the T's and dot the I's and and why that hasn't been done to this point uh, is uncertain. So the federal government, uh, the conservatives are asking, sorry, the federal conservatives are asking parliament to recognize uh, that China is committing genocide against the Muslim Uyghurs minority through internment camps and forced population control uh, and such. Uh, the The official opposition is putting the motion up for debate today. To talk more about all of this, Stephen Chase is with us, senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, and with us now, Stephen. Thanks for taking the time again. Much appreciated. Hope you're well. You're welcome. Thanks. So, uh, give us a bit of an update on where we are today. It appears that this uh, seems to be getting um, uh, gaining momentum, and uh, the opposition are in favor of this. It looks like they are. Uh, the uh, Jugmeet Singh. Uh, well, just to back up, obviously. It was Conservative Party Aaron O'Toole that brought this forward. Today, it's it's an opposition day in Parliament, meaning the debate is devoted to whatever uh, the official opposition wants to debate. And so they have put this motion up for debate. Uh, Jugmeet Singh, the NDP leader uh, earlier this week, um, also said that he believes what is happening in China constitutes genocide. Um, there's little question from the tenor of the debate from the bloc that they seem to agree. So... It looks like the opposition parties who outnumber the Liberals in the House uh, are of a similar mind, but of course we'll have to wait for the vote, which takes place Monday after question period. Right now, uh, you know, we're talking about four, four or five hours today. Uh, it's uh, it's it's MPs from all parties getting up and and having their say on this question. Uh, the prime minister said he was uh, he was cautious to use that term. Uh, didn't want to to overuse the term. Uh, wanted to have T's crossed, I's dotted. Those were other ministers' words, and and more study uh, on this. Is there study going on to verify this of some sort? Is, is something going on that we don't know? There is no study, uh, no um, on the ground independent study taking place in China, uh, and so. Um, it's often puzzling when politicians call for an independent investigation uh, because uh, China has made uh, no effort to allow such investigation in the several years that people have been talking about this. Uh, meanwhile, what we have is a growing body of evidence based on satellite imagery, survivor testimony, leaked documents, smuggled videos, and other sources that have documented what is going on there. And again, this is about the question is, does this constitute genocide? What the conservatives and the NDP are pointing to is in the Genocide Convention, it also talks about that is the United Nations Convention on Genocide, or what's known commonly as the Genocide Convention, that, that efforts to limit population, to restrict births, to 
sterilized women mm. also constitute a genocide. And of course, that is what is alleged to be taking place in um, in uh, the Xinjiang region, where the minority Muslim Uyghur population lives. So mass sterilization, forced abortions, forced insertion of IUDs. Uh, the birth rates are going down. They've dropped uh, 80. The, the birth rate. Uh, the rate of birth has dropped to decline by 80% in recent years. Hmm. So um, despite um, Canada not making this declaration and, and sort of taking a softer approach to China, that really hasn't changed China's reaction to Canada, who continue to uh, throw barbs at us for, for various other things and not continuing this week. They're, they're, they're still uh, um, bullying us, for lack of a better word. Well, I mean, we have seen under the current Chinese president, President Xi Jinping, that China has become far more aggressive in its foreign policy, and that has only ramped up over the last eight years. And so right now, many people refer to the the practice of Chinese foreign policy is wolf warrior diplomacy. It's very much, uh, you know, fist forward. And uh, so, yes, absolutely, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of um, tough talk and sometimes uh, punishment when Canada uh, when Canada upsets China. That is that is part of the issue here. But the the issue that's debated in Parliament right now is whether you know this minority group. And China is ruled largely by the Han Chinese majority, the vastly outnumbers any other uh, any other ethnic group there. And uh, you have these these Muslim and Turkic minorities in the northwest, who um, in the uh, recent period, go take back ten fifteen years, there was um, China became concerned about extremism there, about the potential for terrorist attacks, uh, um, you know, an independence movement among the Uyghurs who have, you know, used to claim their own homeland, East Turkestan, but have now been subsumed within China. So everything that China's done the last four or five years has been, in China's words, to stamp out extremism. But the, the question for debate here is, do the measures to reduce birth rates among the Uyghurs, to sterilize the Uyghur women, to force abortions, do that, does that constitute genocide? And of course, the United States has already weighed in on the matter. Uh, even Joe Biden's new Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, has said he agrees with the previous administration, with Pompeo and Trump, that this does constitute genocide. And of course, we've also heard from um, um, Erwin Kotler, the sort of uh, elder statesman of the Liberal Party, who who uh, also was a Holocaust advisor uh, on Holocaust matters to Mr. Trudeau, he believes it's genocide. So the question that the Liberals are posing, however, is: Do we want to? Does this cheapen or lessen uh, the, the the value of the word if we apply it to the Uyghurs? And that is what's up for debate right now. Some people are pointing out that Mr. Trudeau himself called the um, horrible murdered and missing a horrible case of murdered missing aboriginal women he called that um genocide two years ago three years ago mm-hmm. and they're asking him why he was um he's reluctant in this case but again it comes back to where you what you mentioned before mr trudeau says he wants to see a full investigation people question whether that sort of investigation is possible so what happens after this vote? So say all of the opposition uh, votes in favor. What happens then? Does he have to declare that? I mean, where does this go? Well, um, Parliament is basically 
uh, especially a minority parliament, is run by the by the by the members, not by any particular government. So, parliament, if they vote in favor of this, that will mean there'll be an official declaration from the Canadian Parliament uh, recognizing uh, the treatment of the Uyghurs as as a as a genocide. That does not constitute government policy, but it constitutes the declaration of the Canadian Parliament. So it will be, I guess, you could argue that's a substantial condemnation. Uh, and uh, that is not the sort of thing that other countries have done yet. Uh, but you have seen, of course, the U.S. State Department and Anthony Blinken as the Secretary of State say the same thing. So it will add to the body of um, condemnation around the world, but it will not. Mr. Trudeau is not bound in any sense to take any measures as a result of that. He's supposed to take heed of what Parliament says, but he's not bound by it. Just as last fall... The um, the, minor- the minority parliament voted, um, urged Mr. Trudeau to come up with a solution uh, and decide whether or not to allow Huawei within 5G, uh, within the 5G wireless network, and Mr. Trudeau ignored that. So what does this mean for the prime minister, then, if this vote favors the opposition? Does he just ignore it and move on, or what does this mean for his brand? It puts more pressure on him because... Uh, he has talked about a feminist foreign policy. He has talked about Canada being back on the world stage. And he has um, people within his own party, including, of course, uh, there was an entire subcommittee, a human uh, common subcommittee that just, that declared last fall that this constitutes genocide. And the majority of members of that were liberals as well. So it puts, him, it puts more pressure on him to do something. I'm not sure that um, he can always just, he, he will be able to justify it, um, probably with the argument that this could hurt the, the fate of the Michaels, uh, which is often uh, a, a justification that we hear from the liberals, that, that anything we do to anger China could jeopardize the, the plight of the, of the two Michaels, who, of course, have been uh, incarcerated uh, with um, what Canada has called manufactured allegations. It sounds like they're angry anyway. years. It sounds like they're angry anyway, though. I mean, man, he's, he's in a weird spot, that's for sure. Uh, what about Beijing 2022? Where does that leave? Where is that in the discussion? That is actually uh, sort of one of the things that the opposition has argued should follow from a declaration of genocide. If you truly believe that the Chinese are, uh, are basically conducting genocide against this, uh, this Uyghur population, then how can you, they argue, send your athletes to participate in the 2022 Games, which is an event that China will certainly use to try to cement its legitimacy and to sort of push back at a lot of the criticism over the last few years. China will argue if all these Western nations are coming to our Games, uh, that means that they can't, we can't be that bad. So the NDP and the Conservatives and the Green Party have all said publicly that we should we should push or press the Olympic organizers to move the games out of out of Beijing. They argue that it wouldn't be fair to deny the athletes a, a venue to compete, but they're arguing the venue should be changed. And now that I now that I mention it, um, the son of um, of uh, Gilles Duceppe, who is also now a, uh, a Bloc MP, has also started a petition to, uh, um, uh, with many Bloc supporters and Quebec politicians to also call for the games to move. So we have seen no indication that Mr. Trudeau will mm-hmm. act on that or, or try to press the IOC for that. But the, um, the sort of calls by the various parties will sort of add to that what has been a growing sort of uh, 
chorus of condemnation around the world right now. Again, however, Mr. Trudeau has no uh, no need to heed them or to take any measures, and we haven't, in fact, seen any sense that he is reconsidering uh, sending our athletes to the Games in 2022. In fact, his government has said it's up to the Canada Olympic Committee to decide, which is essentially a private organization with which receives uh, some government funding, but the government has sort of downloaded responsibility for Beijing to that organization and says it will not make a decision itself. Stephen Chase with his senior parliamentary reporter for Globe and Mail. Uh, the article on the Globe and Mail, Parliament, uh, Parliament to vote on recognizing China's persecution of the Uyghurs as genocide. Stephen, again, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. All right, let's bring in John Williamson, conservative member of the Canada-China Committee and is with us now. John, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on your show today. Uh, once again, uh, just uh, remind everybody what the Canada-China Committee is all about. Great question. So this committee was set up after the last election. Uh, it was passed uh, by Parliament uh, to set up a committee to study and investigate, really, all aspects of the uh, relationship between the government of Canada and the People's Republic of China. And I should note as well, this was set up because over the objections of the Liberal government, they voted against it, but the uh, other opposition parties voted with this uh, with the Conservatives. It was our motion to set up this, uh, this, uh, this committee, and we have been meeting over the last year and a half to uh, probe the relationship between Canada and the U.S., and, or pardon me, and, and China, and, uh, and examine most recently, we looked at what's happening in Hong Kong. Uh, our next study is going to be on the security aspect. We've looked at some of the uh, the involvement with the uh, People's Republic of China and their deepening ties with our universities and uh, and our research facilities. So it's it's meant to have a critical look at the relationship with China because we have lost confidence in the government, uh, the Trudeau government's ability to deal with uh, with China in a responsible manner that protects Canadian values and and upholds our safety and security. Um, how do you explain uh, the prime minister's relationship with China? Um, many can understand that, okay, you don't want to upset them. They've got the two Michaels, and, and you don't want to, uh, you, you certainly don't want to advance uh, any sort of conflict in any way. Uh, but yet, on the other hand, he also seems to be very willing to do deals. There was just the announcement uh, earlier on in the week that Huawei was going to invest more in Canadian yeah. universities. Uh, we remember the CanSino deal way back at the beginning of of uh, COVID-19 and such and wanting to do, do a deal with them. So, you know, again, I can yeah. see maybe not wanting to poke the bear, but, gee, do you want to serve them honey, too? I, I just don't understand. How do you explain this relationship? Well, it's, it's bizarre, and it, on some level... Prime Minister seems to be enthralled with uh, with with mainland China, and of course, before he was Prime Minister, he uh, he admitted that the the country uh, he most admires, uh, taking away Canada, of course, was uh, was was China, and its totalitarian government for its ability to make quick decisions. Uh, it was an outrageous uh, remark he made, but I think it goes to the core of his. Uh, of his view on China, along sadly with uh, with with too many members on the Liberal bench. Just this week, for example, the outgoing Liberal Premier of Nova Scotia um, told uh, made some remarks on on the People's Republic of China and cautioned Canadians about pointing out when China is wrong, criticizing them. Instead, he said we should we should learn from China 
and then uh, and then uh, and then make money off them. A very uh, a, a, a very uh, bizarre position. It it really puts aside, I think, Canadian values. What's happening in in China vis-a-vis the Uyghurs, uh, the Tibetan population, and then of course the freedoms which are being uh, withdrawn almost daily in in Hong Kong. Plus, you've got mainland China, which is uh, which is expanding its military reach in the region, threatening our ally Taiwan, and on top of that, um, stealing um, uh, both uh, industrial and research uh, technology from countries like Canada and uh, and our democratic allies around the world. Yet this government seems to, uh, you know, they will they will meekly scold. Uh, Beijing at home, but continue with uh, the business as usual. And uh, I, I think it goes to the, the the core of the prime minister's view on China. He is enthralled with them. So, uh, I, I obviously, debate today on uh, Parliament and, and then uh, hopefully to vote on recognizing Canada, uh, China's uh, persecution of the Uyghurs as genocide. That vote, I understand, on Monday. So, it looks like opposition is going to vote in, in your favor. What happens then? Well, it's still, it, it, it's, uh, it's an indication for the government. So, Parliament, um, and we don't want to count the votes before they're, they're cast, but there seems to be agreement from the opposition bench. It will be interesting to watch mon- Monday how many liberals of conscience um, speak out on this. This is, this is, a, this is I think, going to be an, a vote for the ages because uh, China's persecution is going to continue. And I think the pressure from democracy is going to increase in the years and decades ahead to shine a light on this. And for many members of parliament of, of, of goodwill, um, on the government bench as well as the opposition, this is uh, this is a, a vote that I think is going to matter. So, I think a lot of people are going to be watching liberal backbenchers who sit outside of cabinet to see how they vote. Uh, and the vote from Parliament should have an influence on the uh, on the on the federal government on Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister. It will certainly be picked up by I think our allies uh, around around the world. To date, only the United States government has. Uh, has, has called what's happening uh, to the Uyghurs a genocide. I would like Canada to be the second, but I believe allies in Australia uh, and in the UK uh, are, are looking at this issue as well. So I think the pressure is going to increase, and in, in the vote in the House of Commons, if it does pass, will put more pressure on the Liberal government uh, and the Prime Minister to do the right thing. Uh, as a sidebar to all of this, uh, obviously, conservative leader Aaron O'Toole has called for a relocation of the Beijing 2022 uh, games for obvious reasons. Um, how concerned are you over and above the politics of all of this? And, and, you know, I can certainly see that. I mean, gee, look at us. We're great and we're hosting the Olympics and such. That certainly is a contrast to the reality that is going on there. Yeah. But what about the safety of athletes? I mean, you know, they literally plucked the two Michaels off the street. So how concerned are we for the safety of our athletes there or any of the delegation or the media for that matter? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, now it is a crime to even say outside of China, uh, of China that uh, you believe in a democratic Hong Kong or you believe in, in free China. That is a crime that the state police in China, should you ever step in that territory, could arrest, you, could, could arrest a Canadian citizen over. So our athletes, uh, if they have said something in the past, 
could be in trouble. Certainly, uh, they would be uh, encouraged in China to abandon their own values and say nothing. You would see no. You would you would see no expression of support for the Uyghurs, the people of Hong Kong, uh, Tibetans, or even the hundreds of millions of Chinese citizens who live under the boot of Beijing and the Communist Party. So it would uh, we would be abandoning our our Canadian values just by going, sending our athletes to China to to, to participate because they would be used as confetti as a a, a showboat. Uh, to highlight mainland China, uh, and and I think we would be uh, we'd be participants in their propaganda exercises, and it w- it could it could have an impact on individual Canadian athletes or athletes from any country for that matter, which is just another reason why these games should be moved outside of uh, of China and uh, and hosted by another nation that uh, that is more agreeable to. Uh, international law and uh, and our values as uh, as citizens. John Williamson's been with us, conservative member of the Canada China Committee, uh, Parliament to vote on recognizing uh, China's persecution of the Uyghurs as genocide, despite the Prime Minister not willing to do so. John, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much, and I'll be back to the debates. But look forward to talking to you again. Here is today's daily commentary. It's amazing how a life-changing event, like a global pandemic that has had most of us in southern Ontario locked down in some form or another, can change the way we do things moving forward. The technology that now allows us to work and learn from home has been around for years, yet never accepted until it was a necessity. A lifeline, like now, to get us through the seclusion of COVID-19. Another example of change is Ontario's liquor laws, which were some of the most archaic in the free world. Remember when selling booze in a grocery store was signaling the end of a civilized world as we know it? Now restaurants can sell what Albertans would call off-sales with takeout food, not to mention extended patio service privileges that European cities have enjoyed for generations. Now 7-Eleven has applied for a liquor license, not only to sell at the store, but to enhance their expanded food sales. Who knows what that involves? But I do remember recently traveling in Italy for the very first time and stopping at a rest stop along the Autostrada and having food and service that was better than some Canadian dine-in restaurants along the highway. Here we grow again. Thanks to COVID-19. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hello, Canada. It is another coast-to-coast simulcast, another east-west simulcast between Hamilton and Calgary and Edmonton, Ontario and Alberta. Good afternoon uh, to everybody here in Ontario, and good morning to those in Alberta. I'm Scott Thompson. It is the Scott Thompson Home Show uh, on Global News Radio uh, 900 CHML, and we are joining up with the Danielle Smith Show in Calgary at QR77. Uh, Good morning, Danielle. How are you doing today? It's good to hear from you. I'm so fantastic it's so nice to talk to you so scott i have a real treat because i i'm also broadcasting 6 30 chat in edmonton today so you're speaking to all of alberta 
You know what? I got a chill up my spine because, as you know, during the 80s, I spent three years in that province during the Olympics and had a great time. So it is fabulous to be chatting with Edmonton, and we look forward to uh, listening to the West slam on the East, as always seems to happen in these shows, and bring it on. We, we'd love to hear where uh, where your thoughts are. Uh, I'll start off. Just give us a little bit of a, an update on where you are with COVID-19 and, and what's happening in Alberta. It's funny because our premier, I think, started off really trying to be balanced. The term that he kept using all the way up until November was that he needed to be mindful of both lives and livelihoods. But something happened, and I'm not entirely sure what it was. We did see a spike in cases that was bigger than what we saw in March and April. But I I think your premier, Doug Ford, as well as premier of uh, Quebec, Francois Legault, I think that they were very influential on the decision that he made. We went into a pretty hard lockdown, so he doesn't like to call it that because I think he still likes to think of himself as uh, as uh, trying to find that right balance. But we weren't allowed to see any outside any family members either indoor or outdoor. Our social cohorts went down to zero. Restaurants were closed. Gyms were closed. Retail was taken down to about fifteen percent. I think we made a bit of a better decision than other provinces did. Because we were watching as the big box stores in other parts of the country, I think, including Ontario, got to stay open. Meanwhile, the little guys were getting hammered. So he did try, he, he did things a little bit differently. We've now just gotten back into entering into a new phase of reopening. It's got several steps to it. And we're looking at our hospitalization levels as a way of gauging how much more freedom we can get. So restaurants opened last week. Um, kids have gotten back into minor sports in school and outside of school. Some gyms are allowed to open. For personal training so we're slowly reopening again but uh, we're we're still probably several months away from being back to the the kind of freedoms that we had in in november now you're in a bit of a di- different situation because the premier's taken an all of alberta approach he hasn't gone back to looking at the regional approach and so you've got places that have zero cases literally that are still under the same restrictions it sounds to me like doug ford's doing it th- things a little bit differently so why don't you give us an update on what's happening there yeah it- it very much is. Uh, it certainly isn't a one-size-fits-all here. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Toronto today, uh, there, there's three hot spots still in Ontario, that being Toronto, uh, Peel, and, and York Region, which are all regions in and around the city. Uh, we're a little bit down the lake, 20 minutes down the lake, and everybody else, which is pretty much from Oshawa to Hamilton all the way around uh, the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, are in our, our color-coded red zone, which, again, very similar to what you're experiencing now. Now things are starting to uh, to reopen, but again, we've been on a total lockdown since uh, since just after Christmas time, and uh, it's been pretty tough. It's been pretty tough through January and February to to get through this. Uh, the situation happening in Ontario right now, and this is happening literally as we speak, is uh, the health officials in Toronto and and the mayor of Toronto have all said we don't want to open up now. We need to stay in a lockdown for another uh, week or two anyway and now that discussion is being held between uh, is being held between the premier's office and and uh, the city of Toronto and such as to what they're going to do what that hinges on is the data comes out Tuesday nights and Thursday nights here uh, so obviously they're going to wait till tonight to see what the data is but I would not be surprised if in fact that does happen uh, with the rest of us uh, in and around the greater Toronto Hamilton area around the lake opening up and, and being in a red
red zone that uh, that Toronto still remains locked down. So it is it's it's a very tough situation. The cases are going down and have been going down dramatically due to uh, these protocol and due to these measures, but they are very concerned of the new variants that are coming in. And apparently, obviously, they spread a little bit faster, and most of the new cases that are coming in now are these new variants. So although, and here's the conflicting information, although cases are continually going down uh, in Ontario, uh, they are concerned about the new variants, and this really is a race between the vaccine getting here and how much of a, of a hold these uh, uh, variants actually do have. But yeah, we're, it's still very, very precarious here. We're having the same parallel discussion. I guess the way I look at it is if the variants are going to cause as big a deal as they keep saying, we'd start seeing it at some point. You wouldn't start seeing if it. If it, if it is more transmissible and we have more reason to be worried, you wouldn't see the daily case counts going down. You'd begin to start seeing them go up. So at some point we have to get to a balance where we realize that we're always going to have variants. One story I saw, for instance, said that we, we know that we've got 4,000 COVID-19 variants already. Only a few of them are of interest. But if if they're going to continue to tell us that variants are the reason we've got to stay closed, then we'll stay closed forever. And that's not going to work. Well, again, that's where we come to with the vaccine. Where does the line between the variants and the vaccine inter, you know, interject? When do they finally meet? When do they finally come together? And, you know, obviously we're hearing with the prime minister, uh, in the prime minister's office that it's still going to be, uh, by spring, late March before, uh, you know, six million doses arrive, uh, uh you know, considering nothing else is, is approved, six million doses by the end of March. Well, you know, two doses per person, that's three million there's just less than 15 million people in ontario they need 10 million vaccinated to even have herd immunity that's 20 million doses so this is a drop in the bucket until they all arrive truly let me ask you where things are because you've got also a strange system there because you've got so many different health regions that have different priorities they seem to coordinate on some things maybe not so much on others we have a single health region so when decisions are made by our alberta health services it goes province-wide and uh, we ended up going through and giving all of our long-term care residents that first dosage of the either Moderna or Pfizer vaccine. Some of them have even had the second doses. So when we get our next batch in, we're going to be at a point where our most vulnerable citizens in the nursing homes are in theory protected. Are, are you in the, the same situation in Ontario? Well, they, you know, that was the big argument was uh, people were complaining that Doug Ford had all of these uh, doses sitting on shelves. Well, no, that's the second dose reserved for the people who got the first. That's per, uh, per the prescription of Health Canada and of, uh, of Pfizer. Uh, I remember Dr. Bonnie Henry in BC said, you know, I, I just can't justify having things sitting on shelves uh, when they should be in people's arms. That, that sounds great, but then all of a sudden the shipment stops and, and the Prime Minister can't bring vaccines in. So where does that leave that decision? So in the end, uh, Ford was taking the criticism for that, but then looks like the hero because uh, we've administered uh, so many second shots. So, you know, again, I at the end end of the day the, the the key here is vaccine and getting it in as soon as possible and getting the shots into arms so scott i wanted to pose a question to you if i could in this next segment because i'm wondering how the big p politics is shaping up because our premier is just getting smoked in his popularity ratings i think part of it is that he's being seen to be playing 
Mr. Nice Guy with Justin Trudeau at a time when Cal- when Alberta has a lot of grievances. That's number one problem. Number two, I think people expected him to be a different kind of premier. I think they expected him to maintain a bit more freedom and more balance, and he's failed on that front. So his popula- I think his popularity is divided because you've got those who want more lockdown who are unhappy with what he's done, and those who want less lockdown are unhappy with what he's done. And he's not pursuing some of the autonomy items that are being put on the table by some of our independence parties. Meanwhile, you're guy seems to be soaring in popularity and it's uh there is this question of who is going to wear the blame for vaccinations i think initially the uh, prime minister trudeau was pushing it back on the provinces but out here we're uh, we're pretty firmly pushing it back on him we've got the ability to do the jabs we just need the supply how, how do you see it uh new poll i was talking this earlier this uh, earlier talking about this earlier this week and i can't remember what polling company it was so i don't want to mention one um but about 70 percent of canadians 69 percent of canadians are shifting on that from what this poll said and are uh, now pushing the blame onto the federal government. Uh, This is not a distribution issue. This is not an approval issue. This has always been a supply issue. And the Prime Minister said way back when, before Christmas, uh, that, you know, we don't make these anymore. And he sort of threw that out there and, and, you know, we're not going to get these first. We don't make them anymore. And sort of threw it away as if it was uh, a non-comment. And everybody's, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? We're going to be late on all of this. Uh, And obviously, at that time, he should have started making deals to do uh, production and and such in Canada and instead was doing a deal with uh, the Chinese company CanSino. The Chinese Communist Party pulled that out from underneath them and they started going towards Pfizer and Moderna and just buying stuff instead of producing it. The UK in the same position as Canada. They are now producing their vaccine. So, again, I think it started, you know, it was the provinces. They weren't doing this right. They had that on the shelf when it should be in arms, whereas that, I think, has completely changed and people are aware this is not a distribution problem. This is a supply issue. As far as the premiers, the perception here in Ontario was that Alberta was slow to this game. Uh, the perception in the rest of the world was that on, that Alberta was not taking this seriously enough. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, suffered a little bit at the beginning uh, because of that. Uh, Doug Ford is very much walking a fine line, and it is right down the center. Uh, in some ways, he acts more left than right in other ways, uh, the vice versa. So he is trying very, very hard. He is supporting uh, the prime minister, but... But he will he will call him out. And, you know, he's not hammering him and hammering him, but he's basically saying we need vaccine. So, you know, you can interpret that any way that you want. But I think uh, Canadians, specifically Ontarians, want to see their governments working together. They don't want to hear politics. They don't want to hear uh, bickering. They just want to get uh, the job done. Obviously, uh, in Ontario, uh, the left hammers Doug Ford any time, any chance that they can get. And as we've seen during the pandemic, his popularity has increased because he is playing this kind of, uh, you know, center uh, person and, and trying to get everybody all on on the same page. Uh, but every so often, some politics rears its head. And any time he has a loose thread, uh, the opposition is certainly going to pull on it. But we're seeing with this decision right now that they're trying to make in Toronto in regard to uh, whether keeping the, the, the lockdown in place. Uh, again, for us, what's happening here is... 
It's not the disease. It's not the variants. It's not how it affects you and me. It's the, the fact that uh, the, the small percentage of the people that it does, in fact, it, it, a small percentage of those, rather, end up in an ICU. And we've been in situations here in southern Ontario where our hospitals are jammed with people. And it's not so much whether young people get sick or old people get sick. The majority of the people that get this get over it. The majority of the people get over it. But those that don't end up being hospitalized. And that's the issue. The issue is once the hospital system becomes overloaded, that's when these restrictions start to go into play. I guess we're sort of on the other side of that now. And we accepted when the premier said that we had to make sure that we were watching our hospitalizations. But we're now getting down to a point. We've got 370 people in hospital. Keep in mind, we're we're about one quarter your size. Mm -hmm. So our numbers are going to be much smaller. That is is nowhere near capacity of our hospitals. So people are wondering what's the end game. Now that we're getting to this point, why do you keep moving the goalposts on us? I think that so perhaps that balance is maybe shifted a little bit more in Alberta. The other thing I'd say, and I, when we were talking about the the topics we discussed, I was delighted to see that you had Providence Therapeutics on the list because we weren't sure whether the message was getting out that even though the Prime Minister has said we can't have local capacity to produce vaccines, Providence is. There's Entos Pharmaceuticals in Edmonton that also has the capacity. There's other companies in Montreal, as I understand it, who do as well. I don't know if uh, your premier is going to go down the same path that ours is, uh, which which is to look at cutting a separate side deal with these companies. Brian Pallister in Manitoba, yeah. he's gone through and looked at all the contracts. He says, you know what? There's nothing preventing us from signing our own deals. That's just something that the prime minister said. So now it looks like they're going to, to work on trying to get some supply from Providence when they get their approval. I don't know if we've seen the full plan from Premier Jason Kenney yet, but a big game changer on this one could be your province and your premier. Has he talked about that, sourcing his own Uh, supply? We haven't talked about it. He hasn't talked about actually whether he's accepting a deal, but the rumor is floating around that he is in discussion with Providence Therapeutics. We've had the CEO of Providence on a couple of times talking about this. There's two, there's two major things that changed here, uh, in Ontario and, and I think in the minds of Canadians. A few weeks ago, uh, there was a, a Canadian on, uh, the news media here, uh, Sir John Bell. He worked on the Oxford, uh, vaccine in the UK, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine and he said that UK was in the exact same place as Canada we did not produce it either but back in March and April we decided we were going to and then 10 months later we were producing it and he said Canada can do the same two days later Trudeau announces a Novavax deal with a U.S. company to do a production deal here in the same facility that was supposed to be used for the CanSino deal. Then a couple of days later, uh, Providence Therapeutics starts banging on the media door saying, you know what, Like we've got this stuff. We were only a few weeks behind Pfizer and Moderna at the beginning of all of this, and we were shown the door. So, And now with the Manitoba Premier announcing that he's doing a deal, and when we chatted with the CEO a day or the day that that story broke, he said there were other provinces, and, and I'm guessing Alberta and Ontario, that were all involved in this as well. So yeah, the Prime Minister painted this picture that we did not have the capacity, and at the beginning we didn't, but we could have very quickly, but he decided after the CanSino deal fell through that the best thing to do was to line up in August, the first deal wasn't done until August, to start signing deals with uh, with Pfizer and, and Moderna because we're just buying it all up.
I'm glad that you guys are seeing through that. What we always worry about out West is that you're not getting the same information that we are. And when we get back after another break, which we've got to take right now, I need to ask you about Line 5 and whether the imminent shutdown of that happening in May because of Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer saying she's going to pull the plug on the permit. I'm wondering if that is even permeating the media and on the radar screen because it'll have an enormous impact, especially as we look at what's happening down south with their supply and energy in turmoil. I think we're out of time here. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. We are coming back. It is another East-West simulcast between Ontario and Alberta, the Danielle Smith Show in Calgary. I'm Scott Thompson, Global News Radio 900 CHML. We're coming back. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, uh, Global News Radio 900 CHML in Hamilton. Joining the Danielle Smith Show, QR77 in Calgary and 630 Chad in Edmonton. Uh, Danielle, you want to talk about line five, and it's it's interesting when we were sending notes back and forth last night on this. Uh, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I bet you any more Danielle knows more about line five than most Ontario listeners right oh now. Oh boy, let me make the pitch for you, because especially when we're seeing what's happening down in the U.S., so their natural gas plants and their wind turbines failed all at the same time, and so they're plunged into not only power outages, but also water outages, but it's also impacting their refineries. So four million million barrels of oil that Texas would normally put into the market is now off stream. It's caused a spike in price for the international Brent crude to $65. At the same time, we have Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan saying that she wants to shut down the pipeline, Line 5, that feeds the Sarnia refineries. It's been in operation since the 1950s. Now, I had somebody on last week. He's a, an analyst in Washington. He said, it's going to happen that it will be shut down. And if you look at the map, there aren't a lot of ways to get uh, the supply to Sarnia. It either has to come across the Great Lakes, might be fine when we get into summer. You can get some tankers across there, but it's, it's, you can't get that year round. And, uh, it's not easy to get rail capacity to get, to feed the, the volume that is required in those refineries. It's about 45% of the, uh, of the, of the energy needs for Ontario and Quebec. It's gasoline. It's diesel. It's propane. It's aviation fuel for the Toronto airport. And I'm wondering, when is Ontario going to realize that you're in real trouble when this shuts down? And what is the plan B? We talk about it a lot in Ontario. But every time I have an Ontario guest on and I ask them about this, it's, "Mm, yeah, no, don't know much about that. So I'm just putting it to you. Um, Is this not going to have the impact I think it's going to have? Because we're kind of freaked out about, about it out here. We're still not convinced it's going to to happen. Uh, you know, it's one thing to stop a new pipeline from being built. It's another to stop a pipeline that is already established and and has benefits at both ends of the pipeline. Uh, Sarnia, Ontario, I remember starting my radio career there way back when. Uh, it is a massive uh, chemical refinery area and, uh, you know, the mayor of Sarnia is saying 3,000 jobs uh, lie in the balance of this. Not only this affects Ontario, Quebec, it also affects uh, Michigan. It also affects affects New York State as well. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of propane that goes down to uh, Michigan as well. Michigan's biggest trading partner is Ontario. So uh, there's a lot of a, a lot of politics going on here. A lot of uh, a lot of banter. Uh, Doug Ford says he still hasn't gotten a call back from the mission uh, Michigan government uh, missioner, uh, Michigan governor on this. Uh, he has put a, a, a call into her, and he is uh, uh, still waiting for that call to come back. But I, I have a feeling that there'll be a, a a lot of pressure on industry and 
such to uh, to make sure that this doesn't happen. It kind of reminds me of the story of of Quebec last year. Uh, obviously, uh, Canada wants to put a pipeline or some sort of way of get en- getting energy from east to west and west to east and such. Uh, uh, the East Coast is in the same sort of situation almost as what Alberta is in, although obviously not landlocked. Uh, but an east-west pipeline would be a great idea. Uh, Quebec, obviously, awash in hydroelectricity, uh, driving their F-150s around. We don't need that stuff. And yet, as soon as there's a, a, a CN rail strike and the and the train loads of propane can't come in, they're screaming, where's my propane? Where's my propane? And, you know, this from a province that had a, a, a town literally removed uh, after a, a tragic train uh, derailment and such. So, you know, it, it's the same sort of thing. You can't suck and blow at the same time. And I'll be very, very, very surprised if this, in fact, does happen. Again, it's not a brand new pipeline. That's different. Cutting something off that you said has been there since 1953, that's going to have a massive effect. And this is a massive populated area. I'm just I- letting you know, don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> when I spoke no, to the no. analyst that last no. week, he said it's going to happen. But I have to tell you as well, when you talk about suck and blow, uh, the sense that we get out west is, especially after the, the poll came out, after Keystone XL, the permit got refused there. Alberta and Saskatchewan still wanted to fight it. The rest of the country didn't. And I think the worry that the, I think we're feeling a, l- a little let down that it's almost this attitude of, well, if it doesn't affect me, then I don't care. But oh my goodness, if it does affect me, I do. So yeah, let's get line five, make sure it stays in operation. But meh, we don't really care about Keystone XL. And so maybe you can tell us why that wasn't a big deal. It's a huge deal to the, the health of our province. We've been on side with Ontario when, when we're talking about auto manufacturing. We've been on side with Quebec when we're talking about steel and aluminum tariffs. It doesn't feel like the love is coming back. Uh, I can completely understand that. I can completely understand where you're coming from. And uh, I, I do believe Ontarians and the rest of Canada are terribly naive to what is going on uh, out west, other than, you know, the obvious uh, the obvious stories that make the news. Um, again, you know, uh, I think as far as Keystone, um, I, I think the way uh, certainly Canadians in this part of the country are thinking, how many times can we go to, you know, uh, to bat for this and have it fail? Um, you know, what's the alternative now? Do you keep waiting? Do you do you get into some sort of uh, you know a legal battle uh, with uh, with the United States on this? Again, I think building a new pipeline or, or or project is a lot different than than what is happening with Line Five and such. But no, I mean you you have to ask yourself: Is that it for pipelines in Canada? Are we ever going to see an east-west pipeline? Um, you, you know, and certainly, but with Keystone, I think just time was not on its side. And you know, I think our Prime Minister is great at death by death by delay and I, I think that's what's happened here and and i think canadians are just looking at this and saying i'm not sure what other options we have i i, I understand that let, let me just say this because I'm, I'm leaving radio as of tomorrow i have dan mcteague coming on tomorrow and he was the one, first one who said line five is a big problem dan. i know i love that so I, I would just suggest you might want to get an update from him but i, I also want to get into advocacy because I, I think it's really important that ontarians understand just how precarious their energy situation is so we, i'm going to work on a solution for you if they do end up shutting down that pipeline i promise you i'm going to be working with industry to see if there's some way we can get you the supply that you need so that you're not going to be in the dark or your ro- your cars aren't going to be stranded at the roadside. I should mention that Dan McTague has been on the show several times okay. and has expressed interest in Line 5. Absolutely. Okay, perfect. Uh, so we've got some calls coming in. and Maybe I can take one before we go to our first commercial break, unless there's anything else you want to cover before we go. Nope, go for it. Let's do it. We've got Harpreet on the line here. Harpreet, go ahead. What's on your mind today? 
two things on my mind today. First of all, where do you think the Earth have reserved the carbon dioxide for the future use? They don't have a bank. It's called fossil fuel. Because Earth needs to sustain the life, and the life has to be sustained through the tree growth, plant growth. And they only grow with carbon dioxide. They can fix the carbon dioxide, make the food, and the whole life cycle goes on. So if we lock the bank for the carbon dioxide, that's the fossil fuel, we all will die. And all these stupid scientists who are against the fossil fuel, they are dumb. <laughs> and second thing. Okay, go ahead. You know who is um, uh, called uh, a new line for you I got, and you, you probably should ponder on it. And that is, um, you know who is pandemolitician? No. Who is trying to take advantage of pol- this pandemic to win the next election? All right. I think we lost our break there. I'm not sure he was talking about there, but his bottom line is that we've got to come around to the reality that we need fossil fuels. Do you think there's that, there's that understanding, Scott? Well, again, you know, it's either one extreme or the other. Where the hell's the center here? Excuse my language. I mean, you know, again, I think the world knows and Canada knows uh, that eventually we have to wean ourselves off fossil fuel. But I haven't talked to an expert yet that says this is going to happen anytime soon. It's, 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 a, it's a 20 to 50 year process. So, again, let's take our energy, which is a lot cleaner than uh, uh, other parts of the world, and let's do our part to reduce uh, worldwide consumption and such while we work on what the next level is technology got us into this problem technology is going to get us out of it not taxation not government scott you know you and i we always find areas of agreement but we have to go to a quick break do you want to throw to it yeah that is uh we are having another east meets west simulcast between alberta and ontario qr 77 630 chad in alberta 900 chml here in ontario we're coming back Let's see if I can get the call letters right this time for Scott Thompson, who is with 900 CHML in Hamilton. We are doing a chorus coast to coast, east meets west, west meets east. We're trying to find some common ground. I've got some callers lined up, Mark, Debbie, and Marianne. But I know that uh, we've got some callers lined up in Hamilton, too. So, Scott, why don't we throw to your first caller there? Uh, Sure, we'll go to Frank. Good afternoon. Is it uh, Danielle? Yeah, hi. Yes. Okay, great. Now, I was going to talk to you about oil, but you t- covered a lot there. So I'm going to put the dipstick into something else here to check out, and that is how you, how you folks dealing with the pandemic. And I want to be just specifically your Premier Kennedy. Is, is he doing what you want him to do? What's the, the What are the vibes there with regard to uh, maintaining a solid mind on this over in your neck of the woods. Thanks for the the question. I think our I think we've turned a corner here. We want to see him focus as much on livelihoods as he is on those who are most at risk, the vulnerable in the long term care facilities. Because we've we've managed to get the first vaccination, the first jab in at all the long term care facilities. We're seeing our numbers come way down. We're seeing our hospitalizations and ICU come way down. Now we're really concerned about the mental health of our kids, getting them back into sports, mm-hmm. and also making sure that we get our and the mental health of our adults getting them back into working out at the gym and the sports too. So I think he's moving in the right direction and it's tough because our province is divided. Half the province think he hasn't gone far enough and the other half think he's gone too far. So there's still a little bit more work that needs to be done on that. What about, are you experiencing lockdowns there due to the growth of the and the uncontrollability of the virus? 
uh, we're we're experiencing lockdowns, but I don't know about um, the extent of the control of the virus. Our virus load peaked. Our number of cases peaked December 4th. And we had lockdowns December 13th. And what we're told about this virus is if that's the case, the peak should have happened two weeks before the number of infections because it takes a couple of weeks for them to work through the system. So I know that there's politicians love to give themselves credit for being really draconian and and having these results. But if you look around the world, lockdown, no lockdown, more extreme, less extreme, viral patterns in this part of the the world follow the same pattern. It peaks in, in November, December, January, and then it comes down and that's what we're experiencing and i think the politicians are moving a little more slowly on it do you feel you're getting your fair share of the vaccine and timely as it is in alberta as compared to the other provinces have you compared to the other provinces yeah i've asked the premier about it. i'm having him on again tomorrow and so um we'll we'll make sure that we get an answer from him too but when i asked him about that before i think everybody's in the same boat not every now, everybody is fact, uh, you, you, go ahead Pipeline. You talked about the oil problem. What 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 is the mental state of the Albertans now? There's a lot of talk. I hear it even. I listen to Lloyd Roy Green on. He talks to Kenny that he doesn't come out. Kenny, of course, he's not. But people, I I get the the wave that Albertans want to pull out of Canada. They're getting disgusted. They're 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 losing their faith in the ability for this government uh, to federally to unify the country. And, and come to bat for you guys. Can you can you remark uh, comment on that? Sure, I will, Frank. And then I'll, I'll probably go on to some of our other yeah, calls thanks, too, as well. Um, one of I would say that that Jason Kenney's in real trouble because there is a, a party, the Wild Rose Independent Party, led by Paul Hinman, that's polling at ten percent. And if that continues, he's going to potentially lose some rural ridings, and he will definitely lose Calgary and Edmonton, and then we will end up with another NDP government. So that is 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 definitely what's going on. And I think that uh, that he has to make sure that the group that wants him to be more independent, to take on Justin Trudeau, to make sure that Alberta can stand strong. I think that he's feeling that that group is feeling like they're letting him down. I must also say, if you want me to be honest with you, I've got a lot of people who are saying, you know what, we're being let down by the rest of, of Canada. Maybe line five needs to shut down. So that you can experience <laughs> what it's like to not have reliable energy so that we can have the conversation about how we can get an east-west pipeline going. That's I just want you to know, like I'm not, again, don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but that sentiment comes through a lot is that if you're not going to appreciate what we have to offer, then you know what? Maybe you can go to Lum and give us a call if you if you need anything. So I, I'm just going to put that out there. I don't know. You, you laughed, Scott, but, no, no, but I no, cry I, when I hear that. I know, and, and I don't mean to sound, you know, I don't mean to be flip about it. Um, you know, what I'm thinking, though, is when you said, you know, uh, the, the situation with the conservative government out there and you're going to end up with the NDP. And to me, that just that makes my head spin because it's one extreme to the other. And again, I think the solution to a lot of this is in the center. It's not in the extremes. I think we're hearing too much from the far left, too much from the far right. And I think the solution to all of this is in the center. It's about being fiscally conservative and socially liberal, taking care of people, but also giving people the the right to have a job and, and to work and to improve their, their lifestyle and such. So, you know, again, I, I think it's either way over here or way over there. And I don't think that's where the solution lies. Again, you and I, we always like to try to find the center. It's pretty hard to find these days. Let's go to Mark, see what he has on his mind. Mark, go ahead. Your thoughts today. No, I was going to cover something different, but now that we're on a national audience, I'm going to lay this down for your, uh, for all the callers and all the, the listeners in Ontario and Quebec. Um, 
We, uh, elections have consequences. And uh, I think everybody here in Western Canada realizes that we, um, we hold absolutely no sway in federal elections. It's going to come down to specifically Toronto. It's going to come down to Montreal. Obviously, Greater Ontario plays a part in it. Of course they do. But if you folks choose to vote in the Liberal government again, Liberal government has abandoned Western Canada. There's absolutely, there's zero doubt about it. There's complete evidence for this. If uh, Bombardier has problems, you've got an individual that does handsprings to make sure that they're taken care of. You have an oil and gas industry here in Western Canada. I'm not just talking about Alberta. They do nothing. You could sit there and say, well, you know, they, they gave a billion dollars for TMX or billion and a half or two. Big deal. That's like me asking a friend to go for lunch and saying, can I borrow 200 bucks and then spend 50 bucks on him to go for lunch? It doesn't matter. You, you want to talk about provincial election? Danielle summed it up perfectly. If Jason Kenney cannot deliver on more sovereignty, and I'm specifically talking about Alberta here, if he cannot deliver for more sovereignty uh, for Alberta within Canada, he will lose control in the next provincial election. The NDP will definitely come up the middle, but what will happen is you will have a Alberta first, Western separatist, whatever. You'll have some party, an Alberta sovereign party. I really don't care. They will be the next governing party here in Alberta two elections from now. Marks. And that's presuming that federally Justin Trudeau and the Liberals get back into power. So when you're at that ballot box and you decide to vote for somebody that's liberal and you decide to vote for somebody that is so unserious and is not a leader, there's consequences. So you think about that. Mark, thank you for that. So there you wow. had it. I mean, now and I'm from Calgary. He's go. from Edmonton. And Edmonton sen- it tends to vote more NDP, but that's uh, th- that sentiment yeah. is up there also. Do you have another call on your end? Uh, no, I do have an interesting note, though, uh, in regard to uh, line five. Coverts uh, emails at scottthompson at 900chml.com. Great, uh, great show. Line five is a huge issue. A lot of Ontario is in agreement with the West. Sadly, most opinion and news comes from Toronto and Ottawa. Toronto, we are not LOL. Cheers, Mark. And again, what your, your caller was talking about is the Laurentian elite, and that is where Trudeau gets his votes. Uh, a portion from Quebec, a portion from Ontario, and, and and then there's, you know, he's set. Uh, I, I can. It, it was. It was probably a couple of years ago where you noticed uh, the prime minister just basically push uh, the West aside and and concentrate on on what he has. And you know, I echo everything that your caller has just said. And it, more Ontarians need to listen to that. Need to hear what he just said. Well, I'm so glad you gave Mark the platform because he says that to me, and it's nice to hear that others are hearing yeah. it because I, I think he he really does capture a growing sentiment in Alberta. Let's go to Debbie. I'm not sure if we'll be able to get more calls in, but we can certainly squeeze in Debbie. Debbie, go ahead. Your thought today. Thank you for allowing us to speak to the entire portion of Canada here. Um, I agree with the gentleman that just had spoken. We are feeling very, very, very left out in the West. Um, Every time something occurs or even the Providence, the uh, vaccine here in Alberta, that was proposed to the federal government last March. They absolutely waited and there was nothing. And then just recently they thought, you know what? Screw this. We're going to go it on our own. So why, 
are we feeling so um, separated from the country? And I'm not saying, you know, that the entire country feels like that. You're right about Ontario, Quebec, and Newfoundland. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that, Debbie. We're just running up against time. You know, Scott, like, I'm leaving, but, you know, we're still here. So I sure hope that you have an opportunity to do this again with the person who takes over in my chair, because it's so important to do what we can to yeah, try to understand it, each other. And we should say, too, it was your team over there that, that that initiated all this way back when, and we thank you for that, because every time we do it, we get uh, lots and lots of feedback. So best of luck to you, Danielle. Whatever you do, please keep in touch. And, uh, and again, uh, best success moving forward. You bet I will. That was Scott Thompson at 900 CHML. I'm Danielle Smith, 770 CHQR in Calgary, also 630 Ched. Do stay with us. We will return on Chorus Radio. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season 6 of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.